0: Um, We're going to talk about John chapter 2, but in just a minute. So hang with me. I'm not going to read our text um, just now. It's going to be kind of integrated into what we talk about tonight. Um, I've titled this sermon, Remembering a Wild Ride. Remembering a Wild Ride. I think there's a difference between nostalgia and remembering. Both can be powerful. Both can connect us to one another and to the past but there's a difference between nostalgia and remembering. Nostalgia is like if I mention playing Mario Kart 64 or GoldenEye on Nintendo 64, there's a certain faction of 30-somethings who are transported with me back to a day when there were giant box TVs and late nights and I can smell the chips and candy and I can put my hands right back into the shape of that wild controller of the Nintendo 64. If you're not there with me, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you're there with me, you're there with me. This is a benign form of nostalgia. It happens when we revisit the town or the city that we grew up in. Maybe you pass that burger or pizza place that used to be there that's not there anymore. Or when you walk into your parents' home on Christmas morning and you smell the cinnamon rolls that have become a staple of the holiday for decades. This is benign nostalgia. There's also an insidious kind of nostalgia. It goes under headings like Make America Great Again, or back in the good old days when men could be men. And because I think nostalgia falls into one of these two categories, benign or insidious, it's essentially unhelpful. It's never a thing that helps us to imagine transformation. It's never a thing that stretches our perspective and shapes it toward God's kingdom. Because nostalgia is a pair of rose-colored glasses. Nostalgia is inherently exclusionary. It's tunnel vision. Nostalgia isn't even making an effort at seeing the big picture. Nostalgia is content with the tiny piece of the picture that makes me smile. Remembering is something else. If nostalgia is a pair of rose-colored glasses, remembering is like a trifocal, wide angle lens that can simultaneously bring into focus things that are near and things that are far away. Remembering forces us to look at the trees and the forest. Remembering can hold in tension the positive aspects of American history with the injustices leveled against native peoples, people stolen from Africa. Children and families from Central America trying to escape poverty and war by crossing our border. Remembering has a way of helping us to imagine something new coming out of joy or imagine something new coming out of pain. Remembering forces us to see joy and pain side by side. Even when in our present moment, We often only feel one or the other. Remembering stretches us. Or at least remembering can do this. It can be this when done in community. Last week, some of our staff team took some time to remember. We took some time to remember what life was like a year ago. I don't know if it's been brought up in your mind, but we're almost exactly a year into this pandemic. As a staff, we looked back together on where we were as individuals and where we were as a church. A year ago, this coronavirus pandemic was real, but it hadn't yet halted life for all of us. At least not here in South Florida. And it was crazy to think back to that time. I wanna tell you a little bit about what that exercise brought up for me and for some people on our staff, where I was a year ago. And I hope that through this exercise, you get a little window into our staff team and the conversations that we wanna have about imagining our future as a community. And I want to relate these stories of remembrance to two stories in John chapter 2, which is where our gospel reading from the lectionary comes from. But before we get to that, I want to give you a moment to remember, to think back to a year ago. Where were you? What was going on in your life? What feelings and expectations did you have for what was ahead? I'm actually going to give you a minute or two to do this. You can write it down if you want. Write it down on your phone, piece of paper, if you've got it. Take a minute or two. Where were you a year ago? What was going on in your life? And what expectations did you have for the year ahead? Go. It's going to be dead air on there for a minute. But you all can do it at home as well. All right, give me some words or phrases. Where were you at a year ago? What were you feeling? Just shout it out. COVID hasn't hit yet. Where are you? What are you feeling? Anxiety, okay. Excited. Keep going. Frustrated, more financially stable. What was that one? Hopeful. Good. Our staff team used similar words. Um, We were using words like an awakening. Uh, Like it felt like we were about to set sail. There was a lot of potential about to be realized. There was a freshness, new life, like we were on the brink of something. These were phrases that we were using as a staff. Let me tell you a little of where I was at this time last year. Uh, As a staff with a couple of our elders, we'd just gotten back from the eco-national gathering. That's the gathering of churches and individuals who are associated with our Presbyterian denomination. I was just starting to feel settled into my role here at Providencia. And things were looking pretty great. The way I described it to the staff was that it felt like we were on the verge of something. On the cusp, on the edge. Like we were all in one of Keith's dream sequences where he's standing on the edge of a base jumping cliff. The wings are already clipped to his back. And all that's needed is one little push And it felt to me like we had gotten that little push at the national gathering. Most churches send like one or two representatives from their community to one of these gatherings. We'd sent eight. Most people at the national gathering are, how do I put this delicately, older than me, at least. Half of our team... What is younger than me, and the rest aren't much older than me, except for Keith. Keith's old. We walked around, we walked around like a millennial posse crashing a boomer convention. <laughs> which we sort of were. And we drew stairs from a lot of people. I remember that. By the end of the week, we had developed a reputation, and I don't really know if that's a good or a bad thing, but it's something. We had begun and cultivated several relationships with other churches, and some of those churches were ready to support us, sometimes even financially, as we were looking to take the next steps in our life as a church. It felt to me like the party was about to start. And that's something like what's going on in our first story in John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Third day of what, John? No idea. Doesn't matter. John does not care about chronology. Read John next to Mark. You won't even know what's happening. John's events are all over the place. John does not care about chronology, which makes it interesting that he's put these two stories together at the beginning of his gospel. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. All the important people are gathered in this place, and we should be expecting that something is going to happen. We might not know what it is yet, but something is going to happen. Except that there's a problem. When the wine was gone, that's the problem. The wine's gone. It's especially a problem at a wedding. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, I like to think that Jesus already knew this was the case. Maybe because he's Jesus and he knows things. The text tells us that every once in a while. He's Jesus and he knows things. But I also think maybe Jesus has already been back for a refill. And the bartender was like, sorry, we're out of wine. Jesus is like, okay. So he just gets back to the party. There's no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come, Jesus says. Now two things here. First, I know, I know we hear Jesus using this term woman, and it's hard not to hear it as derogatory. I know that. Try not to, because it's not. We don't have a good alternative translation for this word that stays a little bit faithful to the Greek and gets across what Jesus is doing in addressing his mother. But it's not derogatory. Remember, when Jesus is on the cross, one of the tenderest moments in his entire life that is recorded for us in the Gospels, Jesus is dying, suffering on the cross, and he looks down at the foot of the cross and sees his mother and John. And he says to her, Woman, behold your son. Jesus takes care of his mother from the cross. And he does it by addressing her in the exact same way that he addresses her here. It's not derogatory. It's tender. But the second thing is that the idea of Jesus' time or hour having not yet come, it ought to already be in our minds as readers. We're expecting something to happen. John skipped past Jesus' birth. Again, John doesn't care about the order of events. He skipped past Jesus' childhood. He's brought us to this moment, and we think Jesus' ministry is about to start. But Jesus turns our expectations upside down just here at the beginning. It's not time yet. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Sometimes moms know what you're saying, even when you say the opposite of what you actually want to be saying. Mary knows it's Jesus' time, even if Jesus is telling her the opposite. So she tells the servants, make the appropriate preparations. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. I like to think when Mary tells them, do whatever he tells you, she also accompanies that command with the mom look. That means, do whatever he tells you. And so when the servants go to fill these jars, they're like, Mary told us to do what he tells us to do. So they fill them all the way up to the brim. Then Jesus told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. John really buries the lead in this story. It's not until the drink has touched the lips of the master of the banquet that we as readers realize a miracle has occurred. Up to this point, we've been wondering where my notes go, what this is all about. We've been wondering what this is all about. And we ought to have been wondering what's gonna happen to these servants when they take water to a master of a banquet who is already upset that they've run out of wine. These servants are liable to die for doing something like this. But the master of the banquet didn't realize where the wine had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew So the master of the banquet called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Here we come to the point that John is trying to make in telling this story. It's not just that Jesus has made a way for the party to continue. He has done that. But it's also that the party in its current state, is not the party that is to come. The glory that is being revealed through this sign, that's the language John uses in the very next verse. That glory is the best that has been saved till now. Jesus is the real party, and it's just beginning with this first sign. I want you to imagine what the disciples Could have been feeling we were ready I was ready but I didn't expect to be ready I had come on staff at Providencia just a few months before we went to that national gathering I had been involved in kind of a peripheral capacity before that but from early fall 2019 I was in But not without some hesitancy. A big part of my story over the last five years involves experiencing some trauma in ministry. Being part of a church that loved me but under a pastor who didn't. Being used for my gifts but stretched to the point of breaking. Constantly in conflict. constantly in conflict to the point of forgetting what peace felt like. Some of you have been in story group with me or have sat at my house with Brittany and I late into the night helping us to process the grief and the anger that we were holding on to, at least that I was holding on to tightly. But over the course of a year and a half, Keith and the rest of our staff had let me gradually settle into church ministry again. To do the things that I was passionate about in the church without expecting any more from me. And that was the real gift. And it allowed me to start to hope again for my place in the church. It allowed me to start to imagine and envision what could be in our church and in our city. I was ready once more. And then, instead of jumping off that cliff and feeling our wings catch the air and gliding beautifully into the next stage of our church's life, we sort of got shoved over the edge sideways by a global pandemic. It wasn't the party we thought we'd signed up for. Our staff used words like anxious and tired to describe that feeling just after the pandemic hit. All of a sudden, one of our staff said, all of a sudden being together wasn't safe. It was like we were just trying to stay afloat. It was like heartbreak and it was disorienting. Maybe the disciples felt something similar after the second revelatory sign of Jesus' ministry. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is the very next story that happens in John chapter 2. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Jesus steps into sacred space and finds anything but the sacred. Where there ought to have been men and women and Jews and Gentiles praying and preparing to offer sacrifices to God, Jesus finds extortion, exploitation, and profanity. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now this isn't the spontaneous outburst of anger, of righteous indignation that we sometimes make it out to be in our imaginations. Jesus has come into the temple court. He surveyed what's going on. He's taken the time to fashion an instrument to help him address the injustices that he sees in an authoritative way. And then he's methodically cleared it all out. He's re-sacralizing the temple court. Remember, we call this story in our Bibles the cleansing of the temple. The temple's been profaned, turned into something that it wasn't supposed to be. But the temple would have been one of the last places the disciples expected Jesus to go and cleanse. They might have expected him to go to the political seats of power, maybe Herod's palace or Pilate. They might have expected him to go into the wilderness. That's what some messianic figures did in the first century. And proclaimed that a withdrawal from the societal structures of the Roman Empire is what was needed to become clean. But not the temple. Not the temple. Imagine what the disciples could have been feeling. this path that Jesus is walking goes through the mountaintops and the deepest valleys. It starts at a party where Jesus provides the best wine and then proceeds to a worship space where Jesus scandalizes what was thought to be sacred. Maybe John places these two stories side by side so that we understand that following Jesus includes the ups and the downs. So that we understand that our expectations about Jesus are going to be subverted and are going to need adjusting. But that ultimately, Jesus is going to blow our expectations away. He will be someone different from what we thought, maybe dramatically different from what we thought, but he will be someone who is so much more. And when we remember the ups and downs of the past year, maybe we can see that disciples of Jesus have walked these paths before. This isn't to say that Keith's birthday party is the same as the wedding at Cana. It's not to say that COVID is the same as the cleansing of the temple. I am not saying that God used a global pandemic to cleanse our church. This isn't about a one-to-one allegory. This is about the paths of discipleship that wind through mountains and valleys. Jesus is going to be the host at the messianic feast. That's what the disciples would have been expecting after that party in Cana. And Jesus is going to be the reformer of our unjust systems. That's one thing, at least, that happens in the cleansing of the temple. He's both and lots of other things. But what's constant is that he's Jesus, Emmanuel. God with us. He's present. In our excitement and our planning and our vision casting and our hope, he's present. And in our depression and grief and loss and lament at the past year that has felt like constant setbacks and struggles, he's present. Maybe an act of communal remembering Can help us to start imagining what it looks like to keep following Jesus. Maybe when we remember together, maybe when we take a moment to remember who God is and who we are, we find Jesus is ready to take our burden and take one more step with us. Let's pray.